Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff. This has been a long time coming for me. I mean, a long time. Hollywood Henderson, before I got sober, I would read about him. He's NFL great, played for the Cowboys when the Cowboys were really America's team. Played in three Super Bowls and uh, developed a huge crack in cocaine problem and flamed out of the league and flamed out of life in grand fashion. And his return to the top was also grand. Uh, he uh, gives back to the rooms of recovery, gives back to recovery, gives back to people, uh, gave back to us here today by joining me. But this guy was Deion Sanders before there was Deion Sanders. And now he is uh, just such a serious inspiration. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear this. Uh, Hollywood Henderson, Thomas Henderson now, used to be Hollywood, now is Thomas Henderson. But some of the stories here are just absolutely amazing. The guy's drug use really ramped up when he became good friends with Richard Pryor and Marvin Gaye, and we talk about that and so much more. But uh, this is a good one. I'm, 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 I'm proud of this, and uh, you know, I love this guy for giving me the time. I love this guy, too, for giving me his music, Kevin Souza. Stand by the ocean floor. Thomas, you've proven to be a very patient alcoholic. I apologize. <laughs> um, so where, where are you right now? Are you in Boca Raton? Yes. Okay. My my home is here, and I have a home in Austin, but I spend most of my time in Florida. Okay. You grew up in Austin, Texas? I was born and raised in Austin, Texas. And you moved, you ended up moving to Oklahoma City. I guess you played your first two years of high school in Austin, right? Yes, uh, I went to elementary, middle school, and one year at Anderson High School in East Austin. And so you ended up moving to Oklahoma City. What were some of the reasons behind the move? We were poor. Um, we There were seven of us in a two-bedroom, and two little brothers slept with me, so I was wet on and crapped on and, and you know, at, at around 15, I, I just knew that I had to leave that place. And lucky for me, I had a grandmother in Oklahoma City who adored me. And, you know, I just made that phone call. Uh, we were at Zilker Park on uh, Juneteenth. Uh, 1969 and uh, you know I, I walked out of the park uh, because my mom was raising cane with me and cussing me out and and I went to a phone booth and called my grandmother collect and and she sent me a bus ticket and uh, I was on a greyhound to Oklahoma City so you mentioned your mother raising cane with you. Was there 
alcoholism in your family growing up? Yes, my mom and dad were both alcoholics. I was raised by a stepfather who drank a lot, but my real father was a drug addict and alcoholic himself. So I I, I was in a no-win situation. I never thought I would drink. But as I look back at my life, um, I don't remember 1982. I don't remember 1983 until after I got sober. Um, I had started, you know, I started as a teetotaler, beer, wine, cigarettes, marijuana, um, Mess around with a little hallucinogens. When um, when did you start, Thomas? Like your first drink around? Well, I was nine years old. Uh, my mother left a Mickey in the back seat of the car. Mickey is a half pint. Oh yeah, that fit perfectly in a pair of uh, Levi's. Um, and so my mother left a Mickey in the car, and it was on a Saturday afternoon or something. And I went to the bar with her. And I was about eight or nine. They were drinking, so I just sat in the car and drank the drank the half pint and threw up and don't remember, you know. And so I got drunk at eight or nine. I never drank any more Mickey's for sure. <laughs> but you drank again, right? Like a typical alcoholic. You, you know, I drink. I, I you know, I, I drink beer. I have a sip of wine. That not sip. I'd have a guzzle of wine. But nothing, nothing too serious for the longest time. When did it start to pick up? You go to Oklahoma City. You ended up, I guess you went to the Air Force? No, I was an inch from going to Vietnam. Um, I was born in 53. So in 71, I was 18 years old. And I got my draft notice, 1A. But a funny thing happened. I had flunked geometry. I, I'm a I'm great in math and I love math. But I had a teacher in '68 at Anderson High School, geometry. I didn't like him, and so it was the last class of the day. So I just would go to the pool hall, uh, go up on the streets where, the, where my, my buddies were, and so flunking geometry on purpose, kept me from going to Vietnam. My status went from 1A to 1S, which is school. Looking at your football career, you were one of those, you were like a rangy, super athletic linebacker when, when guys weren't as big as they were today. You were a super athlete. But you walked on in college, at Langston College. How did you end up walking on? How did you end up not getting a scholarship? Take me through that. So right here, I kind of screwed up. Technical issues prevented us from here in Hollywood, clearly. And I don't want to waste your time, but I want to cover what he said because it was pretty awesome. Going into college, he said he wanted to play at Marshall University. And this was after the plane crash in 1970. He said he wrote Marshall a letter years after the plane crash and, you know, looking to play football there. And that didn't work out. And he said he thought to himself, well, if I can't get to Marshall, a team that barely doesn't have a team, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said he heard about a historically black college, uh, Langston College in Oklahoma, and he drove up there. Uh, he said it was first practice. He, he said he practiced on a Tuesday, and the starting defensive end 
got hurt, broke his leg, and he was starting on a Saturday against Kentucky State University, and he never looked back. He said the guy who broke his leg, his coach or his brother was on the coaching staff. So everybody thought that his brother would get his job back, but Thomas says that he was raising too much hell by that point, and he never turned back. Drafted in the first round, a top 20 pick by the Cowboys. One of the reasons why is the reasons why is because he ran a 4-440 in a cow pasture uh, in front of a guy named Tank Younger from Grambling, if my memory serves me correctly. And then Gil Brandt and the Cowboys got that information. They drafted Hollywood. He thought he was going to get taken by the Rams, and then we'll pick the conversation up here. And the rest you can hear very well, or we'll say well. I, you know, I left Langston that day, and you know, I didn't go back for many years. But in other words, I went to I went to Dallas, Texas, the day I got drafted, and and I didn't go back in. I mean, I stayed there. So this is 1975, right? Yes. And you go to Dallas, which is at the time the city itself is really picking up. Uh, you know, I think it's right before the show Dallas. The Cowboys are becoming America's team, and you are from this small college in Langston, Oklahoma. What what that that's got to be some heady stuff for a young man. It was very heady, but I you know, I, I started to make my presence known pretty fast. Uh, um, you know, Landry, uh, Tom Landry uh, didn't talk to me very much. I I can't claim that we had five conversations. <laughs> And you know, and and if we did have five conversations, four of them were negative. <laughs> there was something you know I was doing uh, something, but but I remember one time that I'm a rookie. I'm in rookie camp, and here comes all the veterans. You know, you know Blaine Nye and John Nyland and Ralph Neely and Rayfield Wright and Billy Joe Dupree and and Roger Starbuck. I mean, these, you know, I'm, I'm looking at these men because, you know, I know who they are. And and we line up one day, and so they were, run, the veterans had come in. I had already obliterated the rookie camp. <laughs> Everybody knew that I was going to be on this football team. And so one day, Landry came over to, to the defensive side because he's got his all of his boys in. You know, because before that, there was like a hundred rookies in Thousand Oaks trying to make that that roster. And that year, 12 rookies made that team called the Dirty Dozen. But on one particular day, Tom Landry came over to defense. He said, Henderson, come here. He said, uh, and he put me in in two backers on a goal line. He said, the play goes that way, and he, he started demonstrating. I want you to go through this hole. If the play goes that way, I want you to loop around, you know, and do this. And I said, yes, sir. And so they lined up, the first team, um, it, it, the, the fullback was named Young, and Robert Newhouse and Young. And, boy, the play started. I ran through a hole helmet to helmet with the fullback and he had the ball and the ball flew one way and he flew the other and I got up and I ran over to Landry and I said like that? He said yeah (laughs) yeah just like that (laughs) the only time he ever coached me in my 
five years there. And so you start off that first year, I guess the first couple of years, you're playing special teams. That's on the field, but you're definitely turning heads. What's going on off the field, Thomas, in those first few years in Dallas? You mentioned you were a weed guy at Langston College. What's happening with the alcohol and the drugs off the field? I'm still a teetotaler, you know, uh, two cans of beer, I'm done. I don't, I've never drank whiskey, I've never drank bourbon, I've never drank scotch, Cavassier, I've never, 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 I, you know, vodka, I, you know, um, and so I was still a couple of beers and, and, and marijuana, just a lot of marijuana. And then when did it ratchet up? You, you started that third year, right? You start all 14 games, and the team is real good. Well, let's back up. Okay. So so we go to Miami to play Super Bowl ten Against the Steelers, right? Against the Steelers. And I, I, I go to a concert, like on Wednesday or Thursday. It was the, the Temptations and the Pointer Sisters. I'm sitting on the front row, and one of the pointer sisters started looking at me, and I started winking at her, and and just before you know it, you know, um, I was at our in our in our hotel room, and and we started a relationship. Her name is Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters, and that off season, which would have been you know, January of 76, I went to Los Angeles to hang out with her. Actually, I went to Sausalito, which is outside of San Francisco. But in that relationship, I met Richard Pryor and Marvin Gaye. Okay. And so, you know, in the middle of the day, you know, Marvin would be in the studio, Richard would be at home, and I'm staying with Dennis Edwards, um, um, the lead singer for The Temptation uh, is letting me stay with him. So between Richard Pryor and Marvin Gaye, um, I got a taste of cocaine. And I liked it. Do you, remember, do you remember what you thought the first time you did a line? I thought, you know, I was hyper guy anyway, you know, upbeat guy. It just took me to another level. And it, you know, I like the way it tastes. I like the cleanliness of it. I, you know, I, it, it just uh, rang my bell. Uh, the snorting of cocaine. And so that whole off season, you're out there in, in Los Angeles, but you're getting ready to your your career's getting ready to take off too. Break that down for somebody because that doesn't make sense, right? Here's a guy who now is starting to use cocaine, I guess recreationally at the time, but you really start to your play on the field starts to take off on the best team in the world. Yes. Uh, so my, my second year, we didn't make the playoffs, and I went to Los Angeles pretty quickly. And um, so this would be 76, 77. And so we, we, we win Super Bowl twelve in 1977. And I got on the jet and went straight to Los Angeles uh, to see Anita, hang out with Marvin and Richard Pryor. And so one night, I can't, but one night I'm at Richard's uh, house and, and he's in the kitchen and he's doing something with the cocaine. He's using ether 
and he's he's creating this free base. And this is that free base is before crack. Yeah, and it's like a clean version well, of crack, right? Like a high end version almost. Well, I didn't like the way it tastes. So you know, God put these. <laughs> listen, I didn't like a free base. I didn't like the smell. I didn't like the taste. And Richard was crazy about me not smoking. I, you know, I've been smoking cigarettes. I, I don't smoke anymore, but I had been smoking cigarettes since I was a kid. And so, you know, I'm chain smoking, you know, cigarettes because I'm snorting the Coke and he's smoking the Coke. <laughs> and, and I don't like the taste. You know, he's putting this cocaine on a plate. He's pouring the ether on it. It's drying. Then he takes a razor blade and brings it all to the middle in a little pile of powder. And he's got this glass pipe with the screens on it. And, and I, you know, I, I try it. And it, I just can't stand the vapor, the, the taste in the vapor. You know, it was awful. It wasn't clean. So if, if Freebase would have stayed the same, you know, I would have been fine. But it evolved into crack. I, I read something or I heard something. Spencer Haywood was out there around the same time you were. Uh, you, NBA player, played for the Lakers and was a superstar. I know him. He, yeah, I figured you probably knew him. He got into free base and he was gone, he says. He was married to Oman, I think, and he got into free base and it was a wrap. Yeah, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't leave it. And the same with crack, I couldn't leave it. But uh, so we we win Super Bowl twelve and and you know life is going good you know seventy eight I make the Pro Bowl and so but then you know I started to ramp up my my recreational use of cocaine every bar in town every bartender the you know, places I, I went, my partner, I had a, a nightclub, my partner was a cokehead. Uh, you know, not many cowboys were uh, doing cocaine. Uh, you know, later, there were some players who started doing cocaine, but I didn't have any cocaine buddies on Dallas Cowboys team. Do you think that's because you were sort of ahead of the curve with that the L.A. scene and these are guys who just weren't exposed to the type of things you were? I think I think that's correct. Yes, and and so um, and so in November of 1979, we're playing the Washington Redskins. Preston Pearson uh, comes to me before the game and gives me a handkerchief. It's got a cowboy logo on it, and he says, "I'm I'm making these and I'm selling these." You know, if you get a chance, uh, you know, show it to the TV camera. They always put the camera on you. I said, okay, Preston. So I just stuck the towel in my the front of my pants, and I played the whole game with the towel on. And I come to the sideline, and here comes the camera. And I go, I mean, I and I pull, I pull on the, the the flag for Preston. I'm doing this for Preston. And Tom Landry fired me for that. You guys, and, were, but, I'm guessing you guys were losing the game. We were losing the game, yeah. and he fired me, and I never, I didn't have the opportunity to tell him why I had the flag in the first place. That meeting went awful. After the game so you met with better. him, I read this, after the game you met with him, and you did a bunch of coke, right, before you go to meet with him. 
Yes, yes, that morning, the Monday morning. Monday morning before Thanksgiving, I filled up both nostrils with about a half a gram of cocaine. You know, I was, you know, feet wasn't touching the ground nowhere. Yeah, and you go to meet with him and... It, obviously, that was the end of your career with the Cowboys because he, he – yeah. one of the things I want to touch on you, and I think it might just be a way that you term it or it may just be a, an accountability thing with you being in recovery. You always say he fired you. You don't say you were cut by the Cowboys. You say Tom Landry fired you. Is there a reason why you use that word fired? Yes, because, you know, I was I was a great player. I was an asset to the football team. I ran down on punts uh, as a starter. I ran down on kickoffs as a starter. I intercepted passes. I, 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 I sat quarterbacks. I covered O.J. Simpson and, and Wilbur Montgomery one-on-one. And, you know, I was an asset to the football team. So, you know, you get cut in training camp. You get fired during the regular season. <laughs> I figured there was a reason behind that. A couple more things. I just want to go backwards. A couple uh, things I want to touch on. Did you were you using cocaine in that Super Bowl thirteen, the one in Miami with with the nasal spray? Yeah, and it, it, it got to the point to where I was in taking so much blow that a big scab uh, formed in my, you know, in my nasal cavity. And, you know, I had an awful headache, and I knew my day was going to be bad if I didn't take care of my nose. Yeah. And so, you know, I carried it. And, you know, I regret it. Um, And when an addict is uh, providing his treatment. Self-medication. What could go wrong? (laughs) We're the worst chemists in the world. What could go wrong? So, so I, I you know, I, I could have went to the 49ers. Um, Bill Walsh had uh, claimed me on waivers. And I just, you know, uh, I, I just quit. You know, I said, I'm not going to the 49ers. I'm, I'm going home. You know, I eventually went to the 49ers. Okay. Because they had my waiver rights. And so I went out to play for Bill Walsh and uh, did about four games, hurt my neck. Uh, but he came to work one day and saw me in my locker, you know, and I'm, I'm like in space, you know. I'm snorting and smoking and, and I'm, I'm crazy. And he lets me go, but he doesn't tell anybody that I'm a drug addict. I cried to the team doctor about cocaine habit I had and so at this point just to you know what's going off the tracks and you literally can't control it it's no more fun it's no more Hollywood Henderson this is like a monkey on your back that's right and I don't know what to do with the monkey and the monkey is the monkey even feels sorry for me yeah the monkey is looking at me and says boy you know now look and and um and so Waltz just brings me a check to work and says, you're out of here. And I get fired. And he says, call Bum Phillips. In, in Houston, the Oilers coach. Yeah. 
And so I said, okay. So I called Bum, and Bum says, how much, how much uh, can I get you for? I said, 150. Well, I don't know that uh, Robert Brazil is making 45,000 because he's still on his first contract. And I come in there, I'm probably the second highest, third highest paid player on the team behind Earl and uh, Stabler. Earl Campbell and Kenny Stabler. And so they, you know, word got out how much I was making and boy, the locker rooms turned on me. But I still played well and I put the Oilers in the playoffs. Uh, I intercepted the pass from uh, from the Minnesota Vikings to, to end the game because they were close to marching in. And... Uh, but they did. They said they didn't want me back in Houston. Was it personal stuff? They didn't want you back. No, it was. They knew I was a drug addict. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, like, like they but, you, they thought yeah, your personal life was a mess. Yeah, and teammates were snitching on me, and I had knocked one of the offensive linemen out in practice. He called me the N word, and I knocked him out. I was loaded. Um, and so you know, it, it like. My addiction was so bad that I couldn't take you where I lived in Houston. I, you know, I couldn't take you to the house I lived in because I was so discombobulated. Is that a word? Yeah, that's a word. Discombobulated. You, so you wouldn't be able to find the house? No. Yeah. No, because I went there, you know, loaded, and I left loaded. So everything in between there is a mystery. And people that don't know, like addicts, and and you know, I I was a junkie, you know, and uh, you you end up messed up at work all the time, which is unfortunate. You all, for me at least, I was like, oh, I'll control it, I'll control it, and then then oh, guess what happens? You're at work. You're, for you, you're at the facility, right? And you're you're on drugs. Yeah. So after Houston, I go to treatment. You know, uh, John Wooten. Pulled me to the side, called me to a meeting, said, hey, man, everybody knows what's going on with you. Now, who's John like, Wooten? John Wooten blocked for Jim Brown. Okay. Cleveland Brown. Okay. She was an offensive lineman. He's okay. He's a good brother. And uh, John confronted me, and I cried like a baby, and I went to treatment. And I went to treatment in Arizona. Um... 1980, 1981, and um, Don Shula was interested in me, so I signed with the Dolphins, and, uh, you know, the worst place you can send a, a <laughs> cocaine addict is Miami, Florida. I read that you came back from that Super Bowl, Super Bowl thirteen, with like four ounces of coke. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but how about how about I'm living there now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's so, trouble. But you know, God has a great sense of humor, and I uh, broke my neck and uh, uh, fractured C1, which is the very top of the spinal cord. Um, but He blessed me that He didn't paralyze me, and I went back to Dallas and I smoked up. Uh, $150,000 worth of crack uh, that that year. Every time my check came, you know, you get paid by the game, so I, I was getting about $7,000 a week. 
uh, from the Dolphins. And there was no direct deposit at the time. So I'd, I'd be out there looking for the mailman. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, life got pretty dark. And um, so now I'm smoking crack and I'm lighting it with 151 rum and I'm drinking the 151 rum after I smoke so I can come down from the moon. Uh, who now? Who are you hanging out with while you're doing this? Are, are you isolating? Or are you still? I'm, just... iso- I'm isolating with a family, but you know they give me my own part of the house, and they see me, you know, one or two days a week. Um, and so, you know, and with my last three or four checks, I saved up and I, I moved to California. And and this is the story that I. It's difficult to tell, but I'm going to tell you. Um, I was charged with sexual assault. Now, I was a sex symbol, and women love me, and I love women. And But in all honesty, I don't remember that night. And this is 1983? Yeah. Yeah, when I was accused of sexual assault... I'm going, no, women love me. What do you mean? Yeah, for people who don't know, Hollywood was primetime before primetime. And, see, I started having these things called blackouts. Well, we get so high on the crack that I would drink a half a pint of 151 rum because I knew that would settle me down. But I also, but it also made me unconscious, C- conscious, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah, you were, you were a blackout drinker. <laughs> yes, because I wasn't a drinker. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, and, and that's what happens when you become an addict, I think, and you're taking uppers, you overshoot the mark a lot of times with the alcohol to, to take your nerves down. Yeah, but, but when, you, when you tell this story as an addict, people go, oh, he's just making excuses. You know, I I ask anybody to, you know, you can call all the women who I dated or loved or had one night stand with. I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy. I don't I don't remember uh, having, you know, five or six charges of me assaulting or sexually assaulting anybody. So, um, and I say with all honesty, I don't remember that night. But I, I do remember... I do remember the police knocking on my door. The next morning? Yes. And then that's it. And then it's it's over. Uh, it's over. It's, it's over. And and I tell the police, I go, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I was in treatment. And this is your last rehab. Tell me, uh, just re- give me a refresher because I, this is your your line. You have a take on the word rehabilitation. I've seen some of your talks. And <laughs> what do you say about the word rehabilitation? Tell me, remind me. Okay, so you say rehab, right, like is is a rehabilitation, like a rehabilitation, like and, <laughs> as if you had something going on in the first place. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a, it's, a, it's a funny name. It's not necessarily the, the, the right name, but you end up in rehab. 
Yes. And, 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 and what happens to you? How do you get that bug of recovery? Because you got to want it. You have to want it. Well, I wake up. I come to uh, in a treatment center in Orange, California, and I meet this psychiatrist named Joe Persh. Now, let's go back to 1980 when I went to treatment. It was a, it was a mental hospital. And, you know, people were, women were pulling their dresses up and, and you know, turning doorknobs. And I, and I asked one lady, why are you turning that doorknob? She goes, yeah, I don't know. And she just goes and turns doorknobs. And so I was really in a loony house, uh, which was, I was probably appropriate. And I was judging everybody. And then one day I had a moment of clarity. I go, these people are crazy. And then I thought, I'm in the group. <laughs> what are they thinking of me? And and so that was... And this guy says he played for the Cowboys in, in, a, in a bunch yeah, of Super Bowls. He, he thinks he played for the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I met Joe Perch. God rest his soul. He passed away about six weeks ago. And and he was a psychiatrist. He was a psychiatrist. He treated Betty Ford, Billy Carter, Buzz Aldrin, Betty Ford. You know. How did you get in touch with him? Because you were Thomas Anderson. He, he was looking out for you. Or? No, my lawyer in California uh, just came by the house. I was smoking. Came by the house, picked me up. He cussed me out, and uh, he drove me to Orange, California, from Long Beach. And uh, my life started over. Uh, I've been sober now uh, 37 and a half years because what my because my lawyer took me and dropped me off. Amazing. So, so you'll have 38 years on November 8th, God willing, right? Yes, yes. And so you meet Joe Persh. What does he start to do for you? He starts to be very sarcastic with everything. And he he introduces me to a, a man who had nine years sober. He's a member of AA. And to tell you how difficult this man has been in my life, but been a blessing, he said to me on my 25th anniversary, he said, I still have your recovery in pencil. Oh. <laughs> he said, I might. Think about taking it and writing it in ink when you turn 40. <laughs> so he's a bastard, but I love him. Uh, he has been the best thing that's ever happened to me. He helped me become a man. He helped me become an honest man. He's helped me walk a day at a time. He took me through 12 steps and 12 reasons why I could live a different life. He he restored my that young boy in me that didn't like it and didn't want it, but it was around. And, you know, one day at a time, I've been able to do this 37 and a half years. And, and it, the time is irrelevant. It's the quality of your life, your conscience, your family, your bills, your friends your life uh, that you're that you are the truth to you 
to you. You the accountability and recovery, if you want it, is that you don't like you don't like what that stuff does to you. What the what the alcohol, the the drugs, the cocaine, the heroin, the opioids. You know, the sooner you realize that these are the enemies of your spirit, the enemies of your family, the enemies of your children, the enemies to you, the better. And some people never get to realize that, though. There's still hope. Yeah, now, is that hope. what you say? Yeah, you, there's always there's always hope. Yes. When you got sober, and, and so you 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 still had to go to to jail for twenty eight months. So you go into jail with seven months sober. What is that like? Yeah. How do you stay? How do you stay clean in jail? How do you stay alive in jail? Well, you know, I had worked uh, all the steps. You know, which is pretty fast pace if you think about it. Seven months, but. You know, I I enjoyed the vacation. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't have to you know play for Tom Landry or Bill Walsh or Bum Phillips or Don Shula. You know, I just had to take care of Thomas. I had a daughter, and Richard Pryor sent me fifteen thousand to put on my my on uh, my in my 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 prison bank account where I was able to pay child support uh, during my whole 28 months. And, um, you know, I took, I took care of my daughter. Um, I, you know, I read um, many books uh, about recovery. I ate up the big book. I, you know, it was so raggedy, I had to throw it away. I mean, it wasn't even, I couldn't even put it on a shelf. It was so raggedy. Uh, the big book I took in uh, to the prisons. But, um, you know, I had a, I had a couple of fights in prison, um, you know, and, you know, I, I remember the last fight I had, I was in uh, Susanville, and I was working, I was working out, my job was working out and get in shape firefighters. So when you see those fires in California... Yeah. Where's Susanville, by the way? Is that Southern California? I want you to know that the fireman in the red truck is not on those mountains. It is inmates, inmates, you know, digging fire trails and and doing all that work. So I trained those guys. So one guy, one day, challenged me to to run a 200. Uh, He was supposed to be fast. And I uh, I beat him by like five yards. I just smoked him. And you know I was um, you know I was only thirty one, but I could still run, man. I could still run. So that night in the dorm, he uh, he challenged me. And really, he wanted to fight me in front of the other guys in the dorm. And so I stepped up and beat him down. And after I beat him down, he he said these words. And, and he said, yeah, go to sleep. And see, then he shouldn't have said that. Yeah. And so I had to dance with him again. 
And after I danced with him, I said, okay, I got to get out of here. So I went over to the door and started banging on the door. Officer comes. I said, uh, you got to uh, take me out of here. He said, oh, it, you know, this, we're, you know, it, we're not opening these doors. I said, come here. He came up and through the door, I said, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> And then he was like Barney Fife getting him keys out. <laughs> takes me out. And he takes me to the watch commander. And the watch commander said, what's going on, Henderson? I said, I'm going to kill him. That's all I said for two hours. And I, next thing I know, I was on a bus headed to San Luis Obispo. And I, I played it too good because... When I got to St. Louis Obispo, they put me naked in the cell. What the hell happens said, then? No, I said, I'm all right now. I said, no, we can't, you know, can't let you out to the psychiatrist. I was in that thing for about four days. But, um, <clears throat> so, you know, so when you go to church in prison and you're sitting next to uh, one of the Manson killers, is, is one of those moments of, I really am in prison. Yeah. And so I did my 28 months, and I know nobody wants to go to prison. But it was like I needed it. I needed those 28 months to recalibrate who I am, who I'm going to be consistently, one day at a time and and again I was charged with with a sex crime but I have no memory of that and that has not been anything that's been a habit or something I do I if I if I hurt someone I am deeply sorry I've worked my steps on that and I'd do something about it if I could, but there's nothing I can do but lay words on it. How did you um, re? How did you reintegrate into society? Because here you are, you were this guy who people saw as having it all. You know, I mentioned it. You were like the king of self promotion before there was self promotion among uh, among athletes, especially young black guys like Deion Sanders. Everybody wanted to talk to like the white skill players, and now you yeah. co- you come along. And you kind of change that. And then, of course, you have this amazing fall from grace. And there's got to be a time as an alcoholic, right, where you're ready to um, make amends or certain people come into your life where, like you said, you, you know, you do those esteemable acts. And that's how you get that self-esteem back. How did that happen for you? Well, I came out and I just started taking care of Thomas's business. I had to deal with the Internal Revenue Service. I I got married. I, you know, bought me one of the first Dell computers that came off the assembly line. Um, I made amends where amends need to be made. I paid the IRS back. Um, I, I moved back to Texas. I started 12 step groups in my office. 
Um, I built a football stadium for the community and a track in in Austin. Right now, in Austin, I um, I raised money to do that, and then I got out there with a shovel and did the hard work of digging and cutting and digging and and um, and then on March twenty second, on my mother's birthday. I, I win the $28 million Texas lottery. <laughs> I took the cash option at the time, and so I got $14 million. The 39% taxes on it, so I got $8.9 million. And to this day, Thomas Henderson, who got who was afraid of Google and afraid of, of, uh, of the iPhone, uh, Apple, um, you know, I was too afraid to invest, and so I have been in very conservative things, and and so I'm I got 8.9 million, and, and 21 years later, I'm worth about half that. That ain't bad. Yeah, and I, you know, because I was too afraid to, you know, expose uh, it. I have an NFL pension. I have Social Security. I have two NFL pensions, actually. I'm on uh, Medicare, and the NFL pays my premium for my supplemental. So I'm doing pretty good. And and by the way, you get your 1993 is your 10 year sober birthday, and Tom Landry comes back and shows up. And that, he does. And that's kind of stuff that starts to happen to us when we get sober. Yes, I mean you know that was huge because he would not answer my text or my emails. But I gave him the invitation, and there he walks in with that that red uh, leather jacket and khakis, and he didn't bring he didn't bring his wife, but he came, and he got up on stage and talked about uh, me because he heard some stories from my college coaches, and he got up. And his first thing he said was, "Boy, if I'd have known that, I would have never drafted." <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah it was uh, that was very powerful um, for him to come to my 10 year uh, anniversary and fundraiser and uh, Roger Staubach and Drew Pearson and Two Tall Jones and you know um, you know I've got great friends and and the people who know me uh, know me and so, you know, they've never seen me um, hurt a woman or force a woman to do anything. So the people who know me know me. And I still don't know what happened in, in 83, but for if I, if I look back at it, probably is the best thing in the world to, to happen to me, although I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But for me in particular... Um, this boy who didn't know his father until he was 22, this boy whose mother shot her stepfather right in front of him, this boy who drank his first drink, uh, Mickey, uh, and threw up and didn't remember stuff. And so it all went full circle with the 151 rum. I mean, I'm a teetotaler. I'm a beer drinker. 
but for about a year, you know, getting this from Richard Pryor, I'm starting to drink this 151 rum, and I'm also lighting my pipe with the 151 rum. Yeah, which is quite a, quite a scene, you know. Yeah, in other words, you t- tell somebody it's flammable. Well, why are you drinking it if it's flammable? <laughs> well, it, it it brings me from the moon, you know, back to the earth, you know. And but I don't know that I'm in blackout. I don't know that I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know that I'm meeting people. I don't know. I just don't know. And that's addiction for you. Yeah, but it's scary. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I could have killed people. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. I got a couple more things for you before I let you go. This has been incredible. You are on the cover of Newsweek before the Super Bowl because you say about Terry Bradshaw, he, he couldn't spell cat if he got the C and the A. And he was pissed about that. I mean, I've seen interviews since then. He was not happy. Uh, and then you end up losing the game with the Steelers, and you have a chance to make amends to him in 1999. I read that. At the, at the at the field I was building. He comes to do a piece for you for Fox Sports. Yes, and I, I, I pull him to the side and I go, I really, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm, I made amends. And he goes, oh, and I, I said, Terry, I stopped him. I got his eyes. I, I looked him dead in the eye as a man. And now he's using it as a, as a gimmick. <laughs> I saw him on uh, one of the Super Bowl sportscasts, and he goes, you know, he was talking about he, he wasn't that smart, you know. He, he's, yeah. he's, you know he's, he's, he's playing it up, you know. And, <laughs> and when I see him, uh, I would have saw him this weekend at the Hall at of the Fame. At the Hall of Fame, yeah. But I'm not going. I, I canceled because of the COVID. I, I just, there's too many people in the airport. The planes are packed. Yeah, the, everybody's out traveling again, and your boy yeah. Drew Pearson's getting inducted. Yeah, my boy and Cliff. And uh, Cl- so Cliff Branch? I'm sorry, them, Cliff Harris. I sent them, uh, I sent them notes, and, and uh, I hope they understand. I just don't want to expose my... I got both my shots, and I don't didn't want to expose myself. And, and I know a lot of those people are going to come up and want to shake your hand and give you a hug and and uh, I've been to, you know, 10 or 12 Hall of Fame inductions, and I know that, what the atmosphere is like, and, and I don't feel like doing that. So uh, my life is good. I have two daughters, seven grandchildren. I'm still doing this thing one day at a time. You still getting to meetings? I still, yeah, absolutely. What, what, what the hell? What, I'm just saying, yeah. What you think? Yeah, I mean, me, that, me too. That's all the, I mean, that's, for me, that's what it is, man. That, I'm, the fellowship, I'm, God. Yeah, I'm, I'm, now, I'm doing, uh, you know, I'm doing Zoom, but, uh, yeah, I sneak in a lot of meetings, yeah. What would you tell somebody, or what do you tell somebody that's just hanging on, trying to get a day? Well, you got to make a decision. So, I know some people have never been told that, but but if you're constitutionally capable of making a decision today that I am not going to drink today, I'm not going to use today, and then when a day passes, then you say it again, I'm not going to drink or use today. 
And if you start your day out, even if you have no time, and you, you, if you start out and say, I'm not going to drink today, and before you know it, you'll have 37 years if you can do that every day. Unbelievable. And that, that is a lot of hope. Uh, anything you're working on now? I, I saw some recently that said you were working on a documentary. Is that true? I'm, 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 I'll be looking for that yes. if that's true. What's the story yeah, with that? Under, under my bed is the film and transcript of the Thomas Henderson story. And I have not been able to find uh, a broadcaster, uh, Netflix, or in a, no, you know, I, I guess if, if there's anything like sex in your story, they, they want to put it on headline news. But if you want to tell the story, uh, it's no value to anybody. So, so is the documentary done? It's done. It's under my bed. And, and, and I mean, all the parts of it are under my sure. bed. Sure, yeah. And, and and we need a conglomerate. We need some company to, to, to put the finishing touches on it and, and put it out there, which is not easy, like Amazon or something yes. like that. I understand, yeah. Yeah. So maybe my children will be able to uh, do something with it. But I spent like 200 grand uh, filming, transcribing. It's under my bed right now. Oh, because we, we got to get somebody on that. You know why it's under my bed? Why? Because it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Thomas, last thing. Where can people see? You got great recovery videos out there. Where, where can people see you? Where can people, what's, you know, if they want to find you for a speaking engagement, what can they do? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of easy to find. You uh, are. I emailed. You're the, you're the best. I sent you an email. You said, call me. And I called you and you yeah. answered the phone. That's old school AA yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, you can find me through the Cowboys. Um, uh, they, they're pretty good about passing on information. Okay. If you, if people who want to find me, find me. Um, I'm ready to get out there and uh, tell my story live. I'm a pretty good speaker. By oh, me. you're a hell of a speaker. There's some stuff on YouTube. I don't know if you'll reap any of the benefits of people watching this, but there are like this this one you did, I guess, in like the mid-90s, late-90s, maybe early 2000, where you're just on stage. There's like five parts of it, and it's unbelievable. It's on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. It's unbelievable. Yeah, that's the one. Yes, I'm still clean. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I, I mean, I saw that before I got sober. Um, watching it, like getting welled up, thinking, man, can I do this? And then after I got sober, watching it two years later, and then I watched it just recently. And it's every time it's the same, man. You are filled with hope, uh, and you are filled with, I can do this too. Well, I'm still doing it one day at a time. Yeah. Uh, one of my sponsees recently said to me, man, what's it feel like to be 37 years sober. I said, well, if I can get through the night, it'll feel fine. <laughs> he goes, damn. <laughs> That's the truth. You got all that time and it's still down to like just today? I said, absolutely. I got one last question for you because I, I and, and this is just something I see, I'm a white dude, but there are, you don't you don't see as as many black people in AA meetings. What do you say to the black folks that to, to, to try to get them out there or to, to break the stigma? It's a stigma to break, I feel like. Well, AA2, T-O-O, 
AA2. You can go to church all you want, but AA2. You got to go to AA2. Yeah. All right, Thomas, you're the man. I appreciate your time. Uh, this is uh, this podcast will be up next Thursday. I'll send it to you next Thursday if you want to listen to it or share it with anybody. Thank you, bro. All right, man. Have a good day. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. <laughs>